Good morning, church. I say it every week, but I mean it every week. There is not a place that I would rather be than right here with you. So I am thankful to be together. Especially was reminded of that this week since we had to cancel our midweek Wednesday night worship um, because of the weather. It gave me flashbacks just a little bit of that spell where we had to spend so much time apart. And it makes me even more grateful to be able to be here together with you, um, worshiping together. Now, I have started every lesson with a ministry highlight, and this week I'm going to highlight something that may seem a little odd to some of you, but it's actually pew packers. So pew packers is something that we do every Sunday night up here on my left side of the congregation. The young kids um, that are in our children's program pack these pews up in the very front. And with James McCoy leading them, they lead us in songs. The young men lead prayers for the whole congregation. We usually have some sort of unruly puppet visits and makes all sorts of a mess for James. Um, We listen to our kids answer questions from Bible class and i got to be honest, it's a really encouraging thing that we do. Um, I was uh, looking at our, at our statistics, so you've got to be careful with numbers, but I was looking at our statistics, and I want to I share some of this with you in no shape, form, or fashion to make anyone feel guilty, but I want to point something out. About 60% of our Sunday morning people don't come back on Sunday nights. And, and, again, this is not to shame anyone. This is not about checking a box. I, I'm here to invite you back tonight because what we do on Sunday nights is awesome. And I love it, and I want you to be able to see it and be a part of it. When we start our service off with those kids up here in the front, I'm telling you, it fills you like none other seeing that. And, and watching the puppets, the worship, the extra time to be together, the extra time to fellowship afterwards. This Sunday is small group Sunday, so you have even that extra incentive. Um, I, I just want to point out how special it is to be together. Now, some of you may have been checking your email and you saw that Perry the Peacock came to visit on Wednesday night while everyone was gone. Um, and Perry the Peacock asked our kids a question. He asked our kids what is so important about being together, and I want to read you some of their answers. Um, Easton Dozier said, worshiping together because we are a family. Lindley said, even if no one is our family, we are still a family. Audrey Dozier said, going to ladies' class and praying about God. Colin Sprott said, being together at church is special because it's a time to worship God. Grayson Heath said, having fun with each other and laughing with each other. Daniel Drachenberg said, getting to know each other, learning together, and seeing how we're alike. And then I really love this one. Lydia, she said donuts. (laughs) So, Lydia Drachenberg, I'm right there with you. I'm loving donuts. We need to have more donuts, don't y'all think? Okay, Leo Gilbert said, like listening and praying and listening to God's word and like being with friends. Isla said, going to Bible class. And Crew Harla says, because we love each other and it's important. You know, as I look through that list, I see a lot of wisdom from the mouth of babes. I see a lot of them focusing in on this time that we get to spend worshiping God, this vertical component. And then I see them recognizing the power of the relationships we have with one another and being together and how important that is. I'm so thankful for a congregation that's instilling that in the heart of our children. And, 
and I hope that it, that it just boils over into all of us. Way too much time on my introduction. We are in week six of seven on our I Am series where we are, I Am Jesus series where we're studying the I Am statements of Jesus from the Gospel of John, and today we're going to find ourselves primarily in John chapter 14. So I'd love if you open your Bibles to there. We're going to be in the 13th and 14th chapter, so if you're hovering in that spot, you're going to be safe. And as you turn there, I want to zoom out a little bit and give you a picture of the context of what we're dealing with. In fact, I want to ask you this. What do you do if you are preparing for a trip? Um, you know, it, it kind of depends on the nature of the trip. We all prepare a little differently, but I'm going to guess you're going to pack your bags. Maybe you're a last-minute packer. Maybe you pack the night before. Um, you may spend some time, especially if it's a longer trip, getting the house in order. I know we learned early on that taking out the trash before a long trip was very important. <laughs> Um, it made coming home much more pleasant. So you might do things around the house to get your house in order. And, and you also might prepare your neighbors and your loved ones for what to expect. So there are certain people that you might tell that you're going to be gone. You may live, leave a list of duties with someone in the family to watch over your house or to take care of things in your absence. Um, there may be certain things for them to expect, like how long you're going to be gone, when you're going to be able to get a hold of them, when you're going to return. All of these are things that we do as we are getting ready for a trip. Well, here in John chapter 13... We see Jesus has begun the process of preparing his disciples for what's going to come next. You see, Jesus understands that he is on the road to the cross, and he's about to be crucified, and he's about to be taken away from them for a spell. And it's important that he prepares them for this moment. At the beginning of John chapter 13, we read this. Now the feast, this is in verse 1, now the feast of the Passover, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I love how the beginning of this passage starts. You see, in John 13, all the way through 17, it's this one continuous moment where Jesus has gathered up those closest to him, them, him and he, has, he set them down and he said, Okay, I have some things to get you ready for. I know what's ahead, but you don't know yet, so you sit here, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you some things, and I'm going to do some things so that you are prepared for my departure. And so Jesus set them down, and he washed their feet. And then Jesus stands up, and he teaches them about what's going to happen. He says that I'm going to go. He says, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and this is what that's going to be like. You're going to suffer persecution, and this is going to be a hard time, but here's some glorious things that you're going to experience and some glorious realities that await. And then at the end of this teaching passage in John 17, he stops, and, and we see what we call the high priestly prayer where Jesus prays over his disciples and those who will walk in his footsteps after him. It's a really powerful teaching section, and it's in the middle of this, this umbrella of Jesus loving them to the end and preparing them for what is next that we see our final two I am statements. Um, we see our final I am statement in chapter 14, and later on we'll learn about the vine. Now, both of these statements are set under this umbrella, um, and I want to back up to John chapter 13, and I actually want to read verse 33 with you. John 13, 33. Jesus writes, Jesus says, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, 
Where I am going, you cannot come. Kind of a difficult statement to throw out there in the middle of all of this. He'd made this statement before in John chapter 7 in the middle of the Feast of Booths. It was right before he had told us he was the light of the world. He made this statement. And in John chapter 8, right after he told us he was the light of the world, he made this statement. And both of the times it was directed at the Jews. Jesus said, there's a time, there's a, there's a time coming when I'm going to go away and you're not going to be able to follow me. And, and even in that moment, they're wondering and asking questions. What's this guy talking about? Where is he going? And you can imagine being in the apostles' shoes what it would have felt like to be delivered the same message that had been previously delivered to those who were not his followers. Like, well, hold on, Jesus. You mean us too? You're going somewhere where you're not going to take us because we've been beside you every step of the way. What exactly is it that you're talking about here? We see in John 13, 36, Simon Peter actually stands up and he asks, but Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. You see, Jesus is able to read between the lines. He understands what Peter really wants is to be able to go with him. Peter's followed him everywhere. And the destination doesn't matter as much as Peter simply being with him. You know, oftentimes I think we find ourselves in similar shoes and we ask God similar questions. Where are you? Um, What we're really asking as we wonder where he is and why he's away is, is why? Why and, and when? Why does it feel like you are absent? And when will we be together again? And I think Jesus answers both of these questions here. He, he says, I'm going somewhere where you cannot be right now, but after I go, you will follow. And while he doesn't give details like you or Peter probably would have liked, he assures them and tells them the things that they need to know. And I believe that's the reason this teaching passage exists in John chapter 14. He is unpacking and telling them and loving them to the end, preparing them what they need to know. Let's read it together. John 14, starting in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So Jesus, as the way and the truth and the life, is set in the context of his final departure. And as we walk our way through his teachings here, I think we find several important things that we need to dwell on. Remember, it was his love for them. His enduring love to the end that was driving this difficult conversation. And it was ultimately designed to prepare them for what lies ahead. 
we see that he wants to assure them and wants them to know and understand that this is temporary. We see that his departure has a purpose. We see that he tells them they're going to join him later. He wants to be sure that they understand exactly where it is that he is going and where they will be joining him at. And he wants to be sure they understand how to get there when it's their turn. So we're going to walk through each of these elements in turn. I want to start by looking at the temporary nature of this state. You see, Jesus' conversation here represents a huge change from where he was at before when he had spoken to the Jews. In chapter 7, verse 34, he said, Where I am, you cannot come. Later on in 821, he tells them uh, with stronger words, he says, You will seek me and die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. This was the message that he had given to the Jews. And while at the beginning when he turns to his disciples, it sounds like he's saying the same thing, we find that as he clarifies in verse 36, he's really not. He's saying, you can't go with me yet to his close followers. You will follow afterward. Y'all know that waiting is difficult. You know, this uh, last, a few weeks ago, Braxton decided he wanted to use some of his Christmas money to buy a BB gun, which... Is a, is a pretty exciting thing, um, and I was excited to teach him how to use the BB gun, but we found that it seems like about every five minutes he had a different thing that he wanted to buy with his Christmas money. So we put this rule in place that, well, you can get a BB gun, but you have to want it for a whole week. You're going to have to wait. I'm telling y'all, it was an excruciating week for him and dad. We, uh, we weren't allowed to talk about it, but we could kind of talk around it and kind of wink. You know, we weren't allowed to say the words, but we still talked about the BB gun quite a bit. And as he got to the end of the week of waiting, he did still want it, and, and he purchased that, and he's excited about it. It was an important part of the process. In waiting, he learned to be a wise steward of the resources he had. He learns to monitor his desires and be sure that they are real. Waiting trains our mind to think clearly and not be reactive. We all know that there are numerous benefits in waiting, but it doesn't mean we like it. Scripture is full of waiting. In fact, as I look back to the Old Testament, I see this enormous patience that almost, almost always spanned generations. I mean, Abraham was asked, on, asked to wait for something that wouldn't be realized till multiple generations later. This seemed to be something that they were willing to accept and embrace is the, the, the long game that God was playing in their lives. And they were okay with waiting on it. But here we are struggling with it, and we struggle with it every day. Has anyone ever told someone goodbye? Told someone maybe goodbye for now. Maybe they were going on a trip. Maybe they were being deployed overseas. Maybe it was a student who was starting to study abroad or a close friend who was moving. Or maybe it was a death of a loved one. It's painful to tell someone you love goodbye. But when you know it's temporary, the pain is felt differently. There is hope in the pain. See, when Jesus stepped in and told the Jews you can't come with me. There was a sense of finality to what he was saying. You're going to die separated from me, he said. But when he turned to his believers and gave them the same message, the message encapsulated this not now but soon reality. 
In fact, even while I'm going, going to be gone, Jesus said, I'm going to be preparing things for you. I'm going to be getting them ready for you. Rest assured, believers, this is temporary. It's so easy for us to forget the temporary nature of what we're experiencing right now. I, I look at this, this life, this world, even this place and these people, and I think, this is my lot. This is my home. This is where I'm comfortable. This is our time. This is our time to shine. This is our time to live. This is our time to experience the world and experience pleasure. This is where the action is. And I think the disciples felt that too. But Jesus sits them down and says, hold on. There's something different around the corner. It's not now, but afterward. Right now I'm leaving, but you need to know this is temporary. And I think our response is often like Peter's. But why can't I come now? Why do I have to wait? In verse 37, Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. You see, Jesus answers Peter with sternness. And I think he often answers us with the same sternness. He says, you can't come right now because you're not ready. You haven't bought in enough yet. You don't understand enough yet. Peter was still going to deny Christ three times. Peter wasn't ready. And Jesus had work to do. Peter had work to do, and there lies the reason for the delay. This is important to understand. There is a reason for this interim period. Now, I'm not sure that Scripture reveals every single detail on this side of eternity, but I believe we're told enough to understand their reason. The ultimate reason was Jesus' love, but the immediate reason was His preparation. Things weren't yet ready. Peter wasn't ready. He still needed to train his body and his mind. And his work was belief, true belief. But note also in our text here that heaven wasn't ready. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Jesus was there preparing a place for them. Jesus isn't leaving us in this interim period because he wants to. He isn't leaving on a whim to watch the apostles squirm. He's leaving them because there is work to do. He's leaving them to make preparations for what is next. Jesus is leaving them for their benefit. Do not think that because Jesus is not here, that he does not care or he is not working for you. Jesus is preparing a place for you. Right before Braxton was born. In fact, when we found out, found out Brianna was pregnant with Braxton, our first child, I decided kind of on a whim to pull the trigger and build a barn dominium on some land that we had bought. And I remember very clearly the conversation when I assured Brianna, don't worry, it will be done in plenty of time for the baby to be here. <clears throat> Braxton was eight months old when we moved into that house, and I have to admit it was not done when we moved in. Um, so I made a, made a mess out of that. Now, we had a small rent house, and it was very comfortable. We were well taken care of, no complaints. But I, I bring this up to say this. The process of preparing a place for our family was pretty involved. 
And any of you who have done similar work, maybe you've remodeled a house or built a home, or maybe you've just moved, you know what it's like to be in limbo. You know what it's like to not have a place. Church, when we get to heaven, we're not going to be stepping into a construction project. When we get to heaven, we're not going to be spending time getting our things unpacked and in order. When we get to heaven, we're not going to have this period of adaptation where it takes a while and we have to wait for this place to feel like home. Jesus has already gotten it ready for us. It makes me think of the Israelites. You know, in Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 12, they're cautioned against forgetting. And why? Because they stepped into this wonderful place and all of this stuff was handed to them on a platter. It says they would have great and good cities they did not build and houses full of good things they did not fill and cisterns they did not dig and vineyards they did not plant. And when they experienced that, take care lest you forget the Lord. Church, this is going to be our same experience. Same promised land experience with one exception. There is no possible way we will forget the Lord. Because we are going to enjoy an abundance of things He has prepared for us, and He's going to be there enjoying it with us. And that eases us up to our next point. Church, they're going to join Him. In John 14, 3, He says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. So first there's going to be this restoration of a relationship with Jesus. And next, he's going to gather them up and take them together to this place that he has been preparing. Now, I'm not sure that we feel the same sense of comfort that the disciples would have felt in having this knowledge. Because for us, being with Jesus feels a little bit abstract. We haven't experienced him quite the same way that they have. He was their friend. He was their companion. He was their travel partner. He was their teacher and their mentor. And this relationship was going to be restored. Jesus isn't just pointing their future hope to a mansion over the hilltop. Now, that's a wonderful song, and we sing it, sing it, and sing it well. I've got a mansion over the hilltop. But we look at this verse, and oftentimes we see the fact that he's preparing a place, and that's what our mind is drawn to is we, we, we picture this fancy mansion where we're going to live. And the more important reality of his message here is not the place, but the relationship. The important reality is that our relationship with him is going to be restored. Some of you may have little signs hanging in your house that, that communicate this. Home is where the heart is, um, something like that. Or, or some of you may uh, be familiar with James Taylor's song, You're My Home. He says, home is just another word for you. Now, he's, he's singing to a woman, but, but it encapsulates the idea well. I could live in a mansion or I could live in a shack if the right person is there. As relational beings, we understand that the who is more important than the what. Church, you need to understand that this is temporary. The world is not our home. We need to understand that this temporary state is for a reason. Heaven is being prepared. And we need to understand that Jesus will be there. Our ultimate hope is restored relationship. There will be a day when you occupy a room in heaven alongside Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the community that his disciples shared with him, you will have access to. But there's an even more powerful nugget of truth that's 
that's here, and we often read right over it, and it's in the preceding verse, verse 2. And that is where this will be. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? It will be in His Father's house. That's the place where we will ultimately spend all eternity with Jesus. He's preparing a place for us in the presence of God the Father. God, the tree in being, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is how we hear about it. And and that's confusing sometimes to parse apart. Um, Each one of them have unique roles and unique responsibilities despite being one. But Jesus is very clear here in pointing us towards the fact that, that God the Father, God the Father's house is where we will live. You see, to the Israelites, the Father had always felt very disconnected. He was present. He was ever-present. He was powerful. They didn't doubt Him. But how did they have access to Him? Well, He maybe occasionally came to this place, the Holy of Holies, that was inside, totally kept away from the average person that once a year a, a, a priest could enter into, but the people never had access to. The Father had always been present, yet disconnected in a way. The Father certainly couldn't allow a rebellious, sinful child like the Israelites or like us, dwell in his household. And they knew this. And yet Jesus says, I'm going to get a place ready for you, and it's going to be in the Father's house. We're not talking in the same country. We're not talking just in the same state. We're not talking just in the same county or in the same city or in the same neighborhood. You are going to live under the roof in the household of God the Father. That's where I'm preparing you a place. And then he makes this statement that would have seemed very paradoxical to the apostles. He told them he's preparing a place in his father's house. And then he says in verse 4, And you know the way to where I'm going. Now, ladies, pay very close attention. Those of you who say us guys never ask for directions, look at verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? All right, so we have it in us. I went through a spell where I refused to use GPS, and I would just look at the map and decide that I could get wherever we were going without using the map or directions. And so our family has spent a lot of time wandering around cities with me refusing to ask directions. In fact, this, this last weekend we went to Lubbock, and I only passed, only had to do a few U-turns to get us to the hotel. But I successfully navigated there without... GPS. But I have to admit, my wife is always over on the other side of the car with her map pulled up, giving me little hints that helps us get there. You know, we need to know where we are going if we're going to know the way, and that's where we finally get to our key text here in verse 6. Jesus says to him, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, this is a powerful and offensive verse. And the essence of the message is this, only me. There is one pathway, one access point. I am the unique, singular, exclusive pathway pathway to the Father. There is no other road to the Father's house. I'm the only way to get a room in this house. I'm the only way to have a relationship with Him. Our minds are drawn to pluralism of our culture. We see all the ways people worship different gods and express their truths in different ways. We know that none of the other world religions can give us what we want. And and that is encapsulated in this verse. But his disciples already knew that. 
their minds would have been drawn to this fact. Jesus is saying, there's no more priest. There's no more sacrifice. It's just me. I said it's offensive, and it is, because each of these separate but inseparable realities point us to the fact that Jesus is the only way that this can happen. He's the way. We can't philosophize our way to heaven. We can't work our way to heaven. There's not multiple pathways or multiple access points or multiple doors into the sheepfold. There's not multiple meals that you can eat. There's not multiple light sources to guide your way. There is only one, and it's Jesus. There's no other worldview, no other religion, no other teacher, no sacrifice that you can make, no ceremony that you can follow, no place that you can go and find God except for in Jesus alone. And he has carved a path for us straight into the holy of holies where God is. Jesus is the truth. There are not multiple truths, but one truth. There's no other objective reality than Jesus. You will not achieve knowledge through your own thinking. You're not going to be able to achieve knowledge through setting your own standards. You're not even going to be able to find transparent truth in the Old Testament law. A shadow of it, yes, but not really what you need. Jesus says, I am here to reveal reality for what it is. Jesus is all of these things. John 1.17 says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Never before had human beings had access to this reality on this level. We yearn for truth. We want to understand how things work. We want to understand why they work. We want to know what is real. And that's only available in Jesus Christ. And then he says he's the life. He's the very life that makes this possible. Church, he was there when life was breathed into this world and responsible for it. And he sustains our very life this day, the text tells us. Jesus alone breathes life. On every shelf in every bookstore is someone trying to sell you and tell you how to find this. We spend millions, maybe billions of dollars each year trying to squeeze a little more time out of our short lives through the marvel of modern medicine. Since the beginning of time, human beings have yearned to reach something on the other side of our existence here. And Jesus steps in and he says, but I'm all of this. I'm all of these things that you want. It's me. Last week, Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, he will live. But it's only Jesus. No one, not a single person will ever experience God or truth or life without him. He intercedes for us as the eternal high priest. He provides us with truth that is otherwise unknowable, and he provides us with life eternal. So you see, as I wrap up, that this lesson is a very practical one. Do you want to go to heaven? Do you want to spend eternity with the Father? Do you want to know what is real? Do you want to live? Then you need to know how to get there. And it's through Jesus. Jesus loved these men to the glorious end. And even though there were times when his work was veiled, he made it very obvious these truths. This is temporary. The interim is important because it's preparing us for what lies ahead. Our true home is with Him in restored relationship, and it will be in the Father's house under the protection and provision that only He can provide. But this is only available through Jesus Christ. You need to know this, and the world needs to know this. 
They also need to know how. We learn all that we need to know in Scripture. In John 20, 30-31, we read, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So God's Word gives us the evidence that we need to believe that Jesus is who He said He was. And then it goes on to tell us what we need to do. In fact, we see in Acts chapter 2, the very first time the gospel message is preached, they stand up and he tells them all about Christ and who he is. And when the people finally understand and they finally believe and they finally say, oh, this man really was the Son of God. He really was who he said, what, who, who he, said he was. Then they ask a question in Acts 2.37, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The only pathway to God is Jesus. His message is trustworthy because of the evidence he has presented, and our response is to repent, to change our ways of acting and our ways of thinking, and to be baptized into his name. This is the way. He is the way. and We need to share it and live it, and love it. Don't leave today without Jesus. Because if you do, you leave without life, and you leave without truth, and you leave without access to God. If you believe in Jesus, let us baptize you. If you are unsure, let us study with you. If you are a believer who has drifted, let us pray for you, and restore you, and bear your burdens. That's why we're here. We want to help. We love you. The invitation is yours. Come forward as we stand and as we sing.